Good morning. My name is Bethany Ainey. I will be reading today's scripture passage. You can follow along on page 843 in your pew Bible, I think, 843, um, or on this screen. John 10, 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into this world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? I am not doing the works, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just go ahead and pray one more time. Lord, it's possible at times to come to your word. Um, the way we might come to something in biology class, this or science class, where we, we want to dissect it and, and pin it down. And, and it, your word is living and active. And we don't want to stand above it, judging it, but Lord, may it stand over us and shape us and give us life as you draw near in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, right from the jump, right, right from the start of the sermon, right from hello, I, I want to encourage you with the truth on offer from this passage to you this morning. In Jesus we have the strongest, best leader we could ever have. 
Again, in Jesus, we have the strongest, best leader we could ever have or imagine. To use Paul's words in Ephesians when he prays, he says that Lord would do more than we could ask or imagine. In Jesus, we have more. And all of us want this. In one area of our life or another, we, we, we want a strong leader. Last week, Pastor Ron talked about our common desire for green pastures. I know that's not exactly what we long for. We're not sheep. We don't want literally green pastures. Green pastures is a metaphor just like being a sheep, but that's what Jesus talked about last week. We, we long for good health and peace and relationships that are free from conflict and abundant life, to use Jesus' words. We want this, and, and, and to want this, is, it's not sinful, it's not wrong. I'm sure those in the Middle East right now, with all the turmoil and the war and the violence and the rumors, and they want green pastures even more so. They're not wrong to do so. In a similar way to having this common desire for abundant life and green pastures, we all want, I think, a strong leader. Now, the amount each of us wants to be a leader ourselves may differ. Some of us, yeah, I, I kind of like to lead or I'd rather just be led. Like that, that, that may differ. Like how much we want to lead, but in areas we feel weak, in areas we feel helpless, and even in some areas we might have relative expertise, we, we, we want something, someone out in front of us to protect, to shepherd us, to show us the way. It's a good desire, whether it's you're, you're a leader in industry and you just, you just want someone out there who's further along, who can mentor you and show you the way as you're coming up in your field, or if you're a doctor in medicine, you, you, like, or if you're seeing a doctor, you want, some, you want someone who's a leader in her field, don't you? Over the last few presidential cycles, I think this has been one of the appeals of Donald Trump, and at least to some people, that he, he feels a kind of strength about him. Now, I'm 100 miles away whether, whether he should be our leader or whether you want to vote for him. And I'm not even talking about that. I'm just saying, what, what is the narrative? It's that he's, he, he's a kind of strong leader, strong on China and the economy and career politicians in D.C., these things he's strong against. He's going to make, in his iconic slogan, America great again. That's the word on the street. And, and whether you think that's a good idea or not, I, I'm not talking about that. But just even as I drove through, I was in Harrisburg, Ling part of Lingolstown, and over in Lemoyne. There was a ton of driving yesterday. Every street corner, what's there? Right? There's all these signs for who you're going to vote for. And I, I don't know half of them, right? Especially when you get into local municipalities and school districts and school boards. But none of them say, vote for the weak leader, right? Unless it's anti-campaign, right? Like, they're all saying, there's, there's a strength. The colors they choose, the font they choose. It's all designed to communicate a strength. This desire for strong leaders pops up in all sorts of places. We feel it at work. Perhaps some of you have worked somewhere in the past or you work somewhere presently where the leadership feels weak or confused. You wonder if they're even incompetent. Noah, you can't, you can't nod here <laughs> agreeingly. Um, it's not a great place to work though, is it? Right? Like where everything's unstable, where your livelihood, you come home and you're like, I don't know if... 
We're going to have a job. I don't know who's leading this thing, but like it's not working. Like that's not a place you want to be. Without a strong leader, you feel like you've got to make your own way. Forge your own path and at least find someone else who will do that for you. And to some degree, that is exactly where the people in the first century of Israel found themselves. Looking for a strong leader. Call him a Messiah. Call him something else. Look how the passage opens there in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, verses 22 and 23. Let me, let me read those verses again. A few details here that I think unlock what's going on in the background and how we're to understand it and receive this passage. So John 10, 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, you might not be as familiar with the phrase festival of dedication. We've been talking about a few festivals over the last few weeks, because they're in the background of the passage, and John, here's another one, Festival of Dedication. We're not as familiar with that name as we are by the other name. Some of your Bibles, I'm just curious, like, quick show of hands, you don't have to raise them real high, but like, how many have a footnote right there? It's not in the few Bibles, but like, a lot of your Bibles will have, okay, so a few of you have footnotes, and what that footnote says, it's also known as Hanukkah, Hanukkah. So, okay, we know Hanukkah a little bit, right? Sort of around Christmas time. It's like Christmas, but not, right? Colors are, it's not red and green, it's golden. They have different colors, they have lights. Um, eight days of presents, right? Instead of one, but they're smaller presents. There's a giant candle, menorah. But we don't, we don't know that much, probably, at least many of us. Or we've heard it, we've maybe forgotten. But this detail here in the background is, is it's, it's helpful to know more of what that Hanukkah story is because it, it opens up to us what Jesus offers to be, in fact, promises to be for us in this passage. So, a little, little context, about 150 years before Jesus was born, it's actually a little more than that, but just round numbers, 150 years before Jesus, there was a leader from a foreign country, and he's expanding his reach, and he's invading different peoples. He's a Syrian leader named Antiochus Epiphanes, if I'm saying that right, he's not here to correct us, but that was his name. Maybe you've heard that name before. And he, he's leading these successful military campaigns and expanding his kingdom. And when he gets to Israel, specifically when he gets to Jerusalem and the temple, it's said that he goes into the temple and on the holy altar, so it's not in the temple per se, but on the courtyard around the temple, he's coming through kind of various courtyards, and he's in this inner courtyard, and on the altar, the holy altar, he slaughters a pig to a pagan deity. You don't know? It's kind of a big deal. It would be like conquering the United States and going into the Oval Office and wringing the neck of a bald eagle burning a flag on the steps of the Capitol, something like that, only it's worse because it's not just insulting our national sensibilities, it's religiously speaking an abomination. And this story is recorded in the book of First and Second Maccabees. It's books named after the family line of a leader named Judas Maccabeus. And, and these books are not in the Bible, but they record some of the history leading up to Jesus. And 
Anyway, this Judas Maccabeus um, leads something like guerrilla warfare, these strategic attacks with other individuals, and through those attacks, they throw off over a couple years this Syrian leader. And the temple gets rededicated. And the story goes that they didn't have enough oil, the candlelight, for eight days, but they have it for one day, and to rededicate it for a week, they, the, the oil miraculously lasts, and hence the Hanukkah story, the festival of lights. So which is why this passage calls it the feast of dedication, meaning rededication of the temple. And just like in our calendar, it falls roughly in the winter. We see that at the end of verse 22. Jesus is walking in an area called Solomon's Colonnade, this shielded area from the winter winds. And in that context, they asked Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And with all that in mind, right, all that Hanukkah story in the background, you can hear, I hope, how explosive this is. Remember that Syrian leader, he's been gone for many years, but now who's over Israel? Rome is over Israel, and they're asking the question, as they're going to ask again next week in a different way, in a different setting slightly, in the next few weeks, as we get into the Passover and they move to another festival. But here they're asking the question, if Jesus is the kind of strong leader who will now overthrow Rome, will you revolt, Jesus? Will you engage in guerrilla warfare? And I don't say this, you don't, don't laugh, I don't say this to be cute or clever, but, but to bring it into a context we might understand how polarizing electric and, 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 and kind of either sincere or sarcastic, it's hard to know, it might sound, we might say, they're asking Jesus if he'll make Israel great again. Like, here, that's what they're asking in this kind of way. Is that what you're going to do? And as you can imagine, this is a delicate, explosive question to answer, which is why the conversations in the Gospels where Jesus is having with people, they're so electric when you understand what's going on. Now, the religious leaders know all this. They know the context. Their question's not sincere, as is so often the case in the Gospels. They want to trap them. They know that depending on how he answers, it's going to split the people. Some will be happy, others angry, and Jesus, they assume, can't win. Something similar was happening back in chapter 6. It was the Passover from the year before. And we read in 6.15 that the people, quote, were going to come and make him king by force. If you're not going to take it, Jesus, we're going to thrust you into this role, whether you want it or not, because we want this role to exist and we're going to put you in it. As in that scenario, as in this one, verse 39, he withdrew quick, quietly. He just disappears. It's not his time. It's not his moment. It's not, not his way. But they were going to make him their mascot, their Judas Maccabeus, if you will, their strong leader. And they were both very right and very wrong. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. In his words, in his works, in his life, in his death, in the power of his resurrection, in the power of the promise of his second coming, Jesus is offering to be for you 
the strongest, best leader you could ever ask for. But you have to take him as he is, not as we might imagine him to be. And so, how is Jesus this strong leader, a better kind of leader, the kind of leader our souls need, the kind of leader he is? Well, this passage shows you several ways. I'm not going to exhaust all the ways, but let me give you a few of them. First, we see that Jesus is the strong leader who gives eternal life. Verse 25 through 28, into this question, are you, are you the Messiah, are you the guy, are you, the, you that kind of leader? Here, here's what we read, 25 through 28. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me, they, they witness, they preach. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And here's where I want to focus, 28. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now focus just on that first part. He says, of 28, first part of 28, I give them eternal life. Now this is the sort of verse the sort of saying that we can be accustomed to in church and in the Gospel of John. But do not be too familiar with it to miss how explosive it is. He says, I give. Right? That's significant, isn't it? Jesus says, I give. He says, I have the strength, the authority, the power. Jesus is strong, and in his strength, he does what? He, he gives. He does not say, my sheep listen to my voice, and I give them the possibility of earning eternal life. I give them the potential that if they achieve and try and work and labor and f- do good enough and they follow well enough, then, I, then, maybe then, I will give them a happy, joy-filled forever. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is the strongest, best leader you could ever have because he gives you what you, could neither, what you neither deserve nor what you could ever earn. He gives his sheep happiness, his happiness, forever. It's good news. And there's more. Jesus is the strong leader who protects us from our worst enemies. I'll read 27 and 28 again. Look what he says. Hear him speaking to you. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That word for perish is the same one used back in John 10. 10. That's translated destroyed. Perish, destroyed. Similar ideas. The thief Jesus says, John 10, 10, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Church, you have an enemy. And, and I, I, don't, 
I'll tell you, I, I don't often think this way. I forget, I forget this. I feel like when bad things happen, like there's enough sin in here and a sin out there that we can explain a whole lot of things. But we need the reminder from time to time that you have an enemy that hates you, wants to destroy you, wants you to perish. I don't say that to scare you, but, 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 but so that we have this appropriate fear, reverence, Sort of, if I can say it that way, because it'll come in context. But like, it's sort of like when you go to the beach. I don't know if you know if you go to the beach maybe two, three times, or you don't go very often, or two, three times during the summer. But that first time, and you get out in the ocean, and then you're out there playing. This is fun, and then one wave you don't see coming, just like, right? You're on your back, you're all scraped, you got sand in your shirt, and you just realize, oh yeah, waves are strong. Waves are strong. It's kind of like this. Satan wants you not to have eternal life with God and with his people, but to go to hell forever. And now, into that context, like, oh yeah, waves are strong, Satan's strong. Into that context, hear Jesus say, no, no, not on my watch. I am the good shepherd, the strong shepherd. Think about this in context. Just as one leader from a foreign nation has had desecrated the temple, and that leader then was overthrown. So now the Jewish people, they're, they're, they're going, who's going to overthrow this foreign nation? And it's into this context, Jesus says, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be that kind of strong leader. I could be, and I will be one day. But in this era, what I'm most doing is showing my strength by coming to my sheep who are being eaten by terrible leaders, and I'm going to put my hands around them, and I'm not going to squeeze them, I'm going to protect them. From the waves and the wolves and the thieves and the robbers. Church, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not your difficult marriage. Not your lack of marriage. Not your financial troubles. Not your failing health. Not your hurts from bad pastors, bad shepherds. Not even your sins. Nothing. Do you see how practical and relevant these words of Jesus are? I mean, if you've been at church sometimes, sometimes perhaps you've heard these truths talked about in theological language of eternal security, about what that means and doesn't mean. And it, it, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to talk about this topic from a theological framework. I would hope that's what we want to do. But this discussion becomes, or it at least can become, so heady and complex we want to know whether someone can lose their salvation. I'm convinced the leadership of this church is convinced from the Bible as here, as in elsewhere. I think of Philippians 1.6 where Paul says, He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. I'm convinced the leadership of this church is convinced the Bible is teaching that the answer to that question of whether you can lose your salvation is a resounding no. No, you can't. But then, okay, well... What about people who seem to have lost their salvation? And what about these religious leaders? They seem to be walking with God, but then you listen to Jesus and they don't know God or God doesn't know him. And what about some pastor of some big church who did some really bad things? What does that mean for him and for his people and God's power? Does it mean that that pastor never knew God in the first place, or better, that God never knew him in a saving way? And how long can someone 
disobey the voice of the shepherd. If we disobey God's voice for 10 minutes, does that prove that we don't know God? What if we disobey for 10 days? Does that mean we don't know God? What about 10 weeks? 10 months? 10 years? And what if someone dies while they're in the midst of that disobedience? There aren't much kind of glimmers of hope. It doesn't feel like the, the ship is turning around. And what kind of disobedience are we talking about? Like is, in some ways in our hearts, like there's always this struggle going on. We, I mean, kind of gross, kind of high-handed, like, with the, like by gross, I don't mean like icky, but like a, like a gross, flagrant, like what the, the Old Testament sometimes calls high-handed sins. Do we, are we talking about that? And Jesus speaks of nothing being able to snatch us out of his hands, but as that phrase goes, can, but can we jump out? <laughs> and let's not forget, we might as well just explain every detail of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, right? While we're here. <laughs> but, but we can't, and we won't. And these verses here, I, I think what's going on is Jesus is looking into their question, not so much the religious leader's question, I take that to be insincere, but but because that's a trap. But but he's speaking to the felt needs of the people in his day, the people who heard him speak, the people who are reading the Gospel of John for the first time, and Jesus is answering that their question or the question behind their questions. Maybe it's the deeper question you have as well. Will I really make it to the end? Am I too weak? Are my sins too great? Is my past too dark? Is the enemy too powerful? Am I going to make it to the end? Will I ever find eternally green pastures? I don't, I don't see them now. They're not around the corner. And it's into that that Jesus is saying, you will because I hold you. And he means it to be encouraging. That's how I mean it to be this morning, before it's controversial, before it's complicated, it's meant to be encouraging. And finally, in this passage, we see that Jesus is the strong leader who not only gives eternal life and protects us from our worst enemies, but he is the strong leader who has the kind of strength that comes from God because he is God. This theme, it, it, it starts in verse 29 and then becomes the focus for the next 10 verses. And I admit, kind of the, lo- the intricate logic of what's going on, it, it, it can be confusing, it's a little tricky. Now remember, Jesus is talking to religious scholars, so this kind of, we should expect, well, at times it's going to be in the weeds, so that's what it is here. As they go back and forth, it can feel obscure to us, but, but let's, just for a moment, 28 through 29 and 30, let me read those again. I give them eternal life, he says. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, here's where it becomes, okay, this strength I have is like it's the Father's strength. 29, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, whose hand are you in? Like, what's going on? Well, 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus gives eternal life and he protects us from our worst enemies. Puts us in his hands. 
Then he says that his sheep are also in God's hand. And that he and the Father are one. These Old Testament scholars would not have lost the significance of mighty, God's mighty hand. These are the hands that reached into the dirt, formed Adam. They now, with Jesus, hold the sheep. They hold you. And the mighty hands that rescued Israel from the hand of Pharaoh in the Exodus story now hold Jesus, now hold the sheep, now hold you. Later in John 10, there's this discussion of Psalm 82. And this line about the word of God and call it from, okay, you've heard it said in your law that these people were called gods. Like, what's, what, what is that? They're not actually gods. Why does it call them that? It feels cryptic, strange to us. Again, they're scholars and they've been, they're in the weeds. Into the context, it would seem, from Psalm 82, verse 6, it would seem that Jesus is saying that the people he's speaking to, or God was speaking to in the moment, had this role of enacting divine judgment. And in that role, they could almost be likened to gods. They were God-like, essentially. And what Jesus is saying, like, if that could be said in some small way of them, how much more should it be said of the one who actually is sent from God? The passage is consecrated, set apart. Who is actually God himself. As the Gospel of John says over and over again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like over and over again, from the jump. That's what this book's about. And for that, they want to stone him. This is intense. It's not a casual conversation here. Now they heard Jesus' claim rightly. They actually heard him rightly. There's some kind of dismissive, well, I didn't really mean that, or whatever. Like, well, they thought that's what he meant. Just because we're accustomed to Jesus making this claim doesn't mean we shouldn't be in awe. They just didn't believe it. They heard the claim. They just didn't believe it. They were supposed to be God's shepherds of his people, and they weren't even a sheep. It's an audacious claim, though. I heard a preacher kind of illustrate it like this. He, he was saying like, okay, if we just had everybody in this room or everybody in this world, like we'll, we'll go to this side of the room if you're not God. And, and if you're God, just go over there, right? Like, and everybody's like, I'm going to go over here. And then I'm going to go stand, actually, let's go out, stand in the alley just so that God knows that we're sure that he knows that we know we're not God, right? Like let's just take one extra step back. And then here's Jesus in this context with his words, with his works, he's just walking to the other side. does this the strong hands of the father he says are his hands too different hands but the same and just like this question of eternal security and, and you may have different views than I have that's okay you're welcome to be here other well-meaning Christians have different views but but you should know ours but just like this question about eternal security that can become very abstract and controversial, this question of the deity of Christ and Christology, the study of Christ, it, it can all become all that. But, and that's not wrong. We should approach it theologically and think deeply about it. But just, but just notice how practical Jesus intends for this to be. How emotional. 
How pastoral of Jesus. Believe that or not. How pastoral of Jesus. When talking about his power to be the leader who can lead his sheep through many dangers, toils, and snares, he says, I can do this because my strength is the Father's strength. And some of you, we'll move towards a close. Some of you, you need to hear this from me. This morning, like you, you come to the church, you just feel fragile. You need to hear this, just this tender conscience. Something you've done in the past. and You need to hear neither dementia nor Parkinson's can snatch you out of God's hand. Right? Nothing in all creation. For others, you, you do need to hear this and then you need to re-say this to someone else. You need to preach it to family and friends. I, mean, I, think we, I think sometimes in our evangelism, we, we have such a narrow like, thing. We've got to thread the needle and say these one exact script. And, and really what we're doing is just presenting the bigness of Jesus. Say, would you like it on that? Because I like that. And I think it's true and it's real. You have that opportunity to hear this and, and bring it to others, to preach it to family and friends, to coworkers, people who aren't at church. They're not listening to me preach. They might listen to you, though. You say something like, I, you know, I, I don't know. I was listening to church on Sunday and they're just talking about great Jesus, how strong. And maybe with all this going on in your life, you, you just need to know that. And can I read you a verse? Can I pray for you? Like, you could do that. You don't want to do that? Maybe you just write a card and say, like, I, I, I know what's going on in your life. And just, just hear this word. I was reading my Bible. I heard this verse read. It. Jesus says, I'll give them eternal life. No one can... You'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of your hand. And like anybody who wins in on that, you can have that. I want that for you, you can say. These Sunday morning truths, I think Jesus would tell us, are also for Monday nights at the hospital. And wherever else God might have you next week. Well, I'll tell you, next week we have a few baptisms planned. Super excited been listening to the stories this last week of how God has changed people, and I'm looking forward to, for you to hear those as well. We're also going to be preaching John 11. If you want to read ahead, um, we'll do most of the chapter. A little homework. There's a line, verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. And as you read, I just want you to ask the question, what tone of voice do you think he said that? That's, that's our question when we come back, a short sermon, baptisms, And John 11, and the question, what tone of voice did Jesus say? Take away the stone. So let's pray. And we'll invite the worship team to lead us in one more song. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do hold us fast. And whether these truths are for the moment or for something around the corner, I don't know, we often don't know ourselves. But we pray that in spiritual, supernatural ways, you would like, press them into our hearts in such a way that come what may, we could see you as you really are, 
How does this kind of pep rally, this is full of noise, but real substance. Scott read earlier before his prayer that you are the firstborn of all creation. That you, as Hebrews says, uphold the universe by the word of your power. May we see ourselves in that, in the gospel, in Jesus' name.